This is The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. Average and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following episode may contain the names and voices of people who are deceased. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands across Australia and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their enduring connection to the lands and waterways of this country and thank them for protecting and maintaining this country for us and future generations. In this series, our host Cameron Edwards interviews deadly physios from around Australia. And by deadly, we mean something that is awesome or fantastic. So join us as we have a yarn and enjoy some deadly stories. Yama, or hello in Gamilaroi. Welcome back to another episode of The Deadly Physio. Today, our guest speaker is Aaron Percival. And so we're going to get to chatting and yarning with Aaron in a minute. Before we do, what I'd like to do is pay respects to the elders, both past and present, of the Darug mob, on which land I record from today. Aaron, it's great to have you with us. I'm wondering where you're speaking from today. Yeah, so I'm in Newcastle now, which is the Awabakal Nation. I'd also like to pay my respects for elders, past, present and emerging, both everyone who's helped me along the way so far locally and also back home from Coonabarabran in northern New South Wales. And so Coonabarabran, that's a long way away. What's the mob up there or what mob are you from? So they're the Gummeroy mob and that's where I'm from. So I've got plenty of family ties to the area. My grandmother and great-grandmother records are being born on the riverbanks of Coonabarabran and things like that. So I'm uh, quite local to the area and that's where I spent most of my uh, life sentence until 18. Your life sentence. It sounds like it was a great place to live and to grow up there. Can you tell us a little bit more about it in a moment? But before we do, this podcast is called The Deadly Physios, and I'm sure our audience are wondering, what makes Aaron a deadly physio? What makes me a deadly physio is my blatant disregard for contraindications in practice, being a private practice physiotherapist. (laughs) (laughs) No, so I thought about it. My answer to it was more or less the fact that I'm happy to be certain in uncertainty, working in private practice. We like to think we know the reasons why we do things and how they work, but I'm happy to know that I do things if they work, that's good, and I can back myself up with that, and I try not to get bogged down in too much of the details of it. And I have nice shoes. I always wear pretty colored shoes, which is always a conversation starter. I think pretty colored shoes or anything that's a little bit deviating from a uniform is, like you said, a conversation starter. Something that I do is uh, wear crazy socks. And at the moment, I've got a competition with some of my workmates to see if I can last this six-week rotation without wearing the same pair of socks twice. Yeah, love it. I think I have about two drawers full, to be honest. Wow, I've only got six pairs of socks. Moving on, I actually want to find out a little bit more about you. You mentioned where you grew up, but I want to know a little bit more about that story. Tell us a bit about your family history. So my family history basically uh, revolves around northwest New South Wales, pretty much full stop, start to finish, as far as we know, from Moree to Corinda, which is near Tamworth, places like that. Missions from Walhollow, where my grandmother went to school. That's where it sort of uh, stems from. 
my personal history, so me in general is more or less I'm the youngest, best-looking, and most talented of four boys as a single-parent household. Yeah, so my mother happily took after looking after all of us from a young age for me, anyway, being the youngest. And I more or less got a lot of my frustrations from her, <laughs> but also uh, a lot of my interests and a lot of my stoic things about health and relationships and how people should act with one another. I think that's interesting to hear. What in particular about your mother's interest? Tell us a little bit about your mother, because obviously working as a physio, did she influence that decision at all or what does she do? No, no, not really. So my mother was, she was a, uh, she is a mother for most of that. And then when I, she's a bit of an inspiration in the fact that when I was starting high school, she was doing block release for a master's degree at university in education and Indigenous languages. She finished while I was in high school, which is cool. And it was, I guess, a good way to demonstrate that, you know, you've got four children and a single mother and you can still achieve pretty high accolades, which I think is a quite a good thing. But yeah, so she's been instrumental in terms of pushing me to do things, whether it be public speaking, which I went fairly well at in primary school, youth leadership programs all the way from early high school into university, mentoring other students from primary school to university age in a few different national organizations. You know, I think it all starts from small things, you know, from little things, big things go. And I definitely had that influence to do more and strive for more from that beginning. So if not directly from your mum, we can see that you get your work ethic there, as well as a lot of your inspiration, as you mentioned. How did you actually end up working as a physio or choosing the profession? So I, like most of the physio people around, I started off being heavily involved with sport. I played one and lost pretty much anything you could play in a country town touch football, mixed netball, regular football, soccer, you name it, I did it. On my HSA, I played sport six days a week. So I was heavily involved with that and wanted to be the person who ran out on when the orange shirt and did on game, on field in game assessments. That was probably the earliest of it. And then from there, I actually, when I went and did something with uni, I basically wanted to do something involved with health and some form of education. And I was told an awful lot to become a PE teacher, but I strived for more. And I did exercise and sports science for a year. And then a friend and a staff member at the local Indigenous Institute at the University at Wallatooka suggested that I go into, he wanted me to push me into medicine because they have a good medical program at Newcastle for Indigenous students there as well. But I didn't want to go down the route. I didn't think I had the now to study forever. So I went and I chose physio instead, which was quite a good thing for me because it's given me a decent platform to do things like this, work in health, which I really quite like, have some level of Indigenous focus with it, not necessarily in practice, but in board type things like this and the ATSIC board with the APA and IHA, which is another Indigenous allied health organisation and yeah, things like that. It's really good to hear that there is opportunities at university and people within the profession or within higher education who had that foresight to encourage you to do something that might have been a little bit more difficult or a bit of a deviation from what you were doing. I want to just ask a little bit about the subject of truth-telling and something that you mentioned before in your story made me think about it. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on what is a mission because you've mentioned that uh, some of your family members grew up around those missions and for our audience, just wondering if you could let them know. Effectively, whether it be either for a good or bad reason, you can take your pick and your stance on that. It's more or less a, it was designed to be a segregation of communities, Aboriginal or not, black or white, things like that. It was Burrabadee back home, which means Forky Mountain, which is where the it was where a mountain was quite forky, and the mission was at the foot of that. So basically, long story short, it's a, an 
Aboriginal reservation, I guess, where you are outside of the community, in your own community, outside of town, so to speak, out of sight, out of mind, would probably be the modern day adaptation of what missions were there for. And probably not the best thing to have in your history as a country, but it's happened probably all over the world, in North America especially, that I know of, and then probably a lot of other places. I guess that is a really good segue into the idea of truth-telling, because that can be a really uncomfortable truth that this existed in Australia. And I'm wondering if you can tell me what truth-telling means to you and why it's so important as a concept. Before I do, it's more a case of existing because my family still live on a mission, which is in Warhollow, in between Karuna and Tamworth and northwest New South Wales. There's basically a school, houses, and a phone box there. There used to be a general store, but it was like $8 for a loaf of bread. So it's, you know, that's a different, that's another segue into health inequities and things like that. Exactly. But yeah, so for me, truth-telling basically comes to that. It's more for me about myth-busting than anything else and letting people know that this is what has happened. This is how it then has the potential to affect people's health inequities and shedding light on those health inequities is where I find truth-telling to be for me. And it's whether that be through academic-based things or from my own personal experience, having myself coming from a small town, rural, which being male, being Aboriginal, things like that, you add all those things up and I probably should be in jail at the moment, but I'm not, so win-win. And then from things like that with my eldest brother, who's a bit of an, well, he's made some silly decisions in his life. My mother cares for his two kids. He's been a little bit off the rails with court-type things and my mother's and the fact that that's had on her for her relationship with my brother and also the demanding nature of being a parent to your own grandchildren when you've already looked after four of your own kids and things from that where that potentially could go for my niece and my nephew, whether that means that they end up at some stage in something like foster care and you can just see that cycle might be there and hopefully we're breaking that a little bit just within the same generation. But you can see where that, I guess, comes into light and that's the sort of thing that I like to talk about with people is trying to get them to realise that this stuff does happen. It's a very real process. It's not a figment of your imagination and it's not just something that you can use for some people and not others. It's very much a constant in a lot of Aboriginal communities and in all communities depending on your situation. That is something that we have talked about with some of our other guests on this show is that a lot of the time people think that this discrimination, these inequalities existed in the past, but they really are quite current and quite real for granted a minority of the population. But at the same time, I don't know about you, but working in health, every person matters. Every person's existence and healthcare, et cetera, quality of life matters, to me at least. Yeah. So I think it's really encouraging to see that despite seeing some sad examples within your own family, that you have got this passion to speak openly about it mm -hmm. and also to work in an area that you can do some real good, like you've mentioned. So I think you've got a really unique perspective. Yeah, and it is good to have that realisation for a lot of people realising that it's a present thing, that discrimination, whether it be health-based, racially, gender-based, homophobic, it all still exists. And to deny that, I think, is it's an idea of privilege, let's face it. So that's where it sits for me. And I'm wondering what you think about the concept of being culturally sensitive, because in our registration in APRA that are coming up, it has been released that there will be a component where you would have to demonstrate at least being on the journey of cultural sensitivity. However, that might look, I'm not sure, but it is definitely embedded within the framework. What does culturally sensitive mean to you? 
for me, long story short, the effective practice of being able to understand where someone comes from and how that might influence their decision-making and their health processes and coming at that and trying to identify those and eradicate or manage those as best you can in a non-judgmental, non-confronting manner. And then from there, it's in my personal experience, in my work experience, it's obvious that those things tend to parallel but in an opposite direction in the way that I work in private practice in a metropolitan environment. So my percentage of Aboriginal clientele is more than likely I could count them on two hands in my five or six years working as a private practice physio. And that's because it costs money. It's in a metro population. So it's one of those things where you know that it's not going to happen. So being culturally sensitive about the fact that these people might not have the sufficient funds to be able to go through with a proper rehab program is something as simple as that knowing that someone might not be from Newcastle, for example, and you say, you know, talk, start talking about the Iwabakal people and trying to understand that maybe they're not too associated with the Iwabakal people and they're associated with someone like Gamori people from back my way. And just knowing that is probably a good start and openly having conversations is the biggest thing because let's face it, it's more about people's personal experience than it is about anything else. So if you know the person and you're client-centered, then you sort of can not have a lot of those issues if you just understand the person that's in front of you, whether they be black, white, blue, pink, or orange. Absolutely. And I think that is a really valuable lesson to learn as a physio, this idea of being culturally sensitive. It exists in more than just you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander spaces. It exists all around in our practice. I think it's more relevant, though, because of the two terms which I'm about to throw at you, and I want you to digest them for us and to explain what they mean to you and your practice as well as your personal life. And they are the ideas of reconciliation and closing the gap. What does that mean? Reconciliation with me is the ultimate goal and closing the gap with the similar ultimate goal of aiming for all things equal, so equality. Obviously, that's a different need to what we have now where we're chasing things like equity, which is all well and good. Ideally, I'd love to have it be an equality base. But for me, it's more about trying to recognize that, yes, we can come together and achieve more into the future. I don't like the word tolerance because tolerance for me is like a negative concept of a force that's being applied to you that you have to put up with. You know it's there and you put up with it rather than having a positive relationship with it. So anytime someone talks about tolerance with reconciliation, it makes my blood boil. Yeah, so reconciliation for me is more based around encouraging decent relationships between people, irrespective of any colours, genders and things like that. And then closing the gap is the health-specific version that which we've, ironically enough, set seven or eight guidelines with over the last 10 to 12 years. And they've, I think we've been on track to meet two or three of them and everything else has been quite static. So there was a massive, recently 2020 or 2019, it even might've been a, um, a reform in or trying to get more reform in adjusting those targets for closing the gap. And it shows you how poor we're doing and how little we understand about trying to close gaps between health and equities and Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. I think that's why it's so important to have interviews like this or podcasts like this where we can really shed light on what it means for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, these terms, what they mean day to day rather than on a government policy level. You mentioned it as being the ultimate goal. I'm wondering if you can tell me about maybe some of the more short-term goals or more practical things that non-Indigenous people can do to help create that change we're speaking of. The simplest way to do it is trying to be culturally sensitive and be aware of people around you. 
encouraging more Aboriginal people within your workplace is always a good start and trying to make sure that schools are facilitated because the two biggest things that you'll get when it comes to any sort of health literacy are having an educated person and having financial services to be able to back up or financial stability to be able to back up any services that might need to be required. So having a good open education forum from a school level, encouraging more attendance at school, things like that. And that's from a non-Aboriginal perspective as a teacher, trying to encourage that your kid a bit of special attention or a bit of uh, extra curricular attention, whether it be school related or not, trying to keep them in school if that's what they desire or require to try and encourage as much further education and being aware of where that child needs to uh, or would hopefully try to move forward to. And then from there, it's about that then provision to gaining further education, being able to then hopefully get a stable income, which might provide better food and better ideas for then the next generation to move forward. So it's hard for me to talk about local things when it's a, um, I because I work as a casual academic in this space as well. So I am quite big picture focused when it comes to it. But from a small picture point of view, it's just about trying to accept the fact that we are a little different, which is make a bit of an effort to encourage the people in minority groups to get into more majority fields and majority workplaces and environments. And then going from there to try and then progress that through from generation to generation, person to person. So a theme that I'm picking up in some of the things that you're saying is this idea of knowing. And I've heard you say it a couple of times. I'm wondering what lessons do non-Indigenous physios or people need to know and how can they engage in their own local culture? The biggest thing that I think is a good stepping stone is knowing where you are, so what country you might be on and Things like whether or not they've got something like a lands council, they've got a, a, an organisational committee of some sort that promote events and things like that. And then not being scared or afraid to attend any sort of, whether it be a NAIDOC week, reconciliation week event or anything like that, just to open the door for yourself. I would imagine a lot of it's fear-based and there's a bit of unknowing there on what's going to happen in this environment. Will I be the only person there? And the only question that I pose to people if they have that thought is, where do you think Aboriginal people live 99% of the time? Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC Week are the normals for us. And then the other 365 days in the year or 51 weeks in the year, we're the people who think, am I going to be the only person who's there? So it's that momentary lapse of, or that momentary thought of, should I be here, is probably how a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people feel in everyday life. So if you take that step and you can have that thought process, then you might start to feel a bit more comfortable or realise that other people don't feel as comfortable in everyday life that you might. That is really thought-provoking, actually, to twist the picture or the question a little bit that way to actually empathy and understanding that maybe that's a little bit of a taste of how Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders do feel in everyday life. So, yeah, it's just a good way to personalise it for other people because I find that until you walk a mile in someone's shoes, you just can't understand it. And then even when you try it, you still can't understand it, but at least you can relate to some degree. And then once you can do that, you can go, oh, yeah. Maybe I need to change the way I am or I need to think about things a little bit more. I just need to participate. Absolutely. And I think once you do turn up, unless you are going with you know, malicious intentions or racist intentions, I don't think anyone is going to turn you away. Yeah, yeah. I think that fear will be overcome very quickly for our listeners. Yeah. And even as you've mentioned, if you're considering doing something like that, you're probably in a place where you'll be welcomed with open arms because you're already at the stage in the journey where 
you would consider attending an event like that. Yeah, for sure. And if all else fails, just bring food. <laughs> Who doesn't love a bite to eat? Oh, food is the great mediator, isn't it? Well, we've come to an entertaining part or segment that I quite enjoy. And it's based off the ABCs, You Can't Ask That. And I am wondering, and thankfully I know you well, so I hope you're comfortable while we're talking about this. When was the last time you experienced racism personally? And how did it make you feel? I remember it quite vividly, as I imagine you would, because I consider myself being decent in both sides of the coin of trying to understand the other party. My partner's a psychologist, so she makes that a little bit easier for me. So I can sort of, in a way, understand where people are coming from, although it's not a a good way to come from, but it's there and it's how the norm was and to some degree is. But I remember it being a bloke in our gym. He's an old Veterans Affairs client who always comments to me about witchy grubs and witch doctoring and things like that. Like he himself, he doesn't identify as Aboriginal, but he has a family tree that's Aboriginal, so at least to some degree. And I know he's just talking, you know, garbage. And obviously that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. But again, by the same token, I know where he's coming from to a degree in the way that he's an older fellow. That's a time where he came from a little bit more, which is where it was more socially sanctioned to be that way. Although it's not now, it still happens. But yeah, so I remember that one quite vividly because it wasn't too long ago. It was only the last couple of months and I treat him as well. And he's a lovely bloke, which is the weirdest thing to say. And that's why it's difficult because he's quite nice and he's quite lovely. But yeah, he still has that sort of thought process that just naturally tinkers in. So it just goes to show how riddled racial behavior and racial opinions must have been 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago for him to quite freely and openly, although sarcastically, talk to me about things like witchetty grubs and witch doctoring. So in that scenario, I guess you've got a patient-therapist relationship there, which would be quite unique. Could you confront it? If it makes you feel uncomfortable, how do you address racism from, I guess I would call it the victim's side or the person who is experiencing those emotions side? How can you approach it in that scenario? I'm not sure with her, but I think my daughter's crying. She's not been too well recently, bless her. She'll be right, though. She's pretty tough. Um, So I am a sarcastic person in nature anyway. So it sort of is, for me, I've been around long enough where it's water off a duck's back, but I still confront it. And with as best I can to be not going down the same path in the opposite direction. So you say black, I say white, because then sort of we're both two extremes of the same thing. You know, like if you come at me with racism and I respond with racism, we're no better than each other. So like, and we're both in the same boat. So I feel like it doesn't work. And the unfortunate sort of downtrodden under the thumb thing about it is that I can't get in any way aggressive about it. I can't talk to other people or himself about it too freely because then it's, you know, stop whinging and carry on with life sort of mentality. So you sort of really, you're damned if you do, damned if, damned if you don't. I'm quite lucky, however, in my practice manager, especially she's from an English background. She's lived in Australia for forever and a day, and she's been quite good with trying to learn a little bit more and asking me more questions. And she even started reading Dark Emu as well, Bruce Pascoe's book, to try and get a bit of an idea of how life may have been, how life is, and things that have changed. So yeah, we're at quite a good practice in that regard. It's not something I felt the need to speak to anyone about because it's the way he is, and he's a lovely fellow, and he's sarcastic. But yeah, so in terms of trying to confront it, It's difficult because, like I said, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, but it sort of still needs to be done because if you don't challenge things, things don't change, and it's sort of a philosophy I live by with physio and just with life anyway. Personal decisions, professional decisions, it's how I feel I've got to be because I'm that type of person sometimes. 
It's interesting, this conversation about stereotypes, because they do still permeate our culture. And it's so confusing to me when you look at 250-odd First Nations mobs or countries, I guess you could call them, and distinct languages, distinct practices, etc. And then you bring that to the current day. As you mentioned, you're wearing a t-shirt, shorts, pants, you're living in metropolitan Newcastle, and then to have these stereotypes that because you identify as Aboriginal, therefore you must do something that I heard of once. I find that just to be mind-boggling, really. Yeah, it really is just to the point, like I said, that we're in the same environment, wearing the same clothes, but like you said, it still pops up. So just a demonstration of where things have been in the past and where they, to some degree, I'd hope less over the last well, 50 years. I'd hope so, where people are, I guess. And the unfortunate thing about it is it tends to breed the people who are in that boat tend to breed more people in that boat just from a, well, was, you know, you tend to idolise and you copycat and you are a sponge from people like your parents and your influencers. So it gets a little bit worrying to know that that's around. So for their children or the people they influence, it might be something similar. Hopefully it's starting to turn the tide at the moment, but it sort of is a little bit concerning to have that thought, I guess. Well, hopefully after listening to this podcast, if anyone did have those misconceptions or even those presuppositions, that hopefully they are challenged as they listen to people like you, Aaron, and your story and understanding a little bit about how you practice and your day-to-day life. So one of the things I don't think that you've mentioned yet is that you have a role at your local uni. And I wanted you to just explain a little bit about what that role is. And then I want to ask a question about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. I guess my title is a casual academic in the School of Nursing, Medicine and Public Health, I think it is, or Health and Medicine now. And I run a particular group of students, so a a cohort within the nursing degree on a particular course. It's an uh, Aboriginal health course. And it's an online course where I liaise with students in regards to the topics of the week and the topics of the course in regards to Indigenous health, social justice principles, things like that, and determinants to health and racism and all those different topics that can pop up within health. Sorry, my daughter's having a bit of a carry-on. I have that role within the university and I mark assessments and things as well. So it's not as involved as I'd like it to be, but I also don't have enough time for it to be Uh, face-to-face and things like that. So my job is to moderate discussion boards and provide information and provide insight and mark assessments. So in particular, now speaking about students and whether or not you've had any in your private practice or not, I do know that in the not-so-distant past, you were a student yourself. And I'm wondering what is the best way to mentor or encourage or even inspire Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders students who may be coming through on a prac or maybe for any of the academics out there? I think the general way to do it is take them under your wing as another Aboriginal person within the workforce is probably the best way to do it to show you that they've done it so you can do it and hopefully be the best person you can be in that environment and stand true to your moral compass. That's probably the best thing you can do. And outside of that, it's just trying to be open and honest with the discussions you have with those students because they often are a little bit confronted with some of the poor health of other Aboriginal people and especially if you work in a rural or remote community, how services in metropolitan places are very different to services in rural places. The best way, if you can't do a specific mentoring job, then 
advocating as much as you can for students at the university level. I've been involved with tutoring and trying to get more health students at the University of Newcastle or the ones that are there, sorry, the current intakes. In the past, trying to talk to physio students, small amounts of tutoring as well, I've done so something like that can be a really good thing to make sure that they're going okay with their studies because tutoring with all people, but especially with Aboriginal people at uni, is more about the connection to other people and as well as getting the information you need. Just tutoring someone, this is the answer, there you go, often doesn't work as well as you'd like it to, especially for someone who's Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, because we tend to like having that connection with people as well. So it's really important to make sure that you can make them in any way possible, whether it be mentoring at the university, high school days, I don't know what the word would be, you know, like a profession day or something along those lines can be really good ways to do it as well. Being present and being an example there. You mentioned that as, I think, potentially in the frame of being an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander physio and having that influence. Is there anything in particular that you would add if you are non-Indigenous? Again, it comes down to cultural sensitivity. So having another professional there who's non-Indigenous and uh, is not too aware, trying to have an open environment for myself and an open frame to answer questions and just offer that opportunity for them to ask because often they won't come to the forefront as quickly as you would like. So offering that open book, that open door type philosophy is a really good way to get the conversation started. As I mentioned, you're not a new graduate, definitely not, but you're still in the early career stages or what I would perceive as those early career stages. Where to from here for you? What are your goals and aspirations within the profession and also outside of it? To be honest with you, I'm not sure at the moment. My partner's getting back into the workforce after having our child and I'm more or less, I'm working to keep our, from that point of view in terms of my career development is more about trying to keep us in a financial state of okayness until she's up and running and all good. And then I might even take six or 12 months off to look after the child to allow her to go back to work and get some sort of name back in the game, so to speak. That's probably it for the short term. Long term, I wouldn't mind having a practice of my own in some way, shape or form. But for me, it always tends to come back to education in Indigenous health. It's something I've done no matter what I tend to do. It always comes back to something like this, something like a lecture at the university on Indigenous health, something like an alumni speech about my experiences at the university when I was there. It always comes back to some sort of thought-provoking educational propaganda, which I quite like. And it's just where I've been pretty much since I was you know, 12. Before we get to the pointy end of this interview, I just want to point out, number one, because my passion is pediatrics, but number two, something you've mentioned before, and I have loved actually hearing the sound of your baby in the background, particularly in your story. So if we recall back to the beginning of this episode, when you were speaking about the difficulty of your upbringing with your mum. And also with your brother, I think having the baby present in this interview has actually been quite powerful. And like you said, you know, looking forward to hopefully putting a halt to some of these sometimes overwhelming disparities that can plague or become a dark cloud over Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander life. So I want to say I like that, Aaron. <laughs> she most certainly is a break from work. I try as best I can to be at home, I don't bring notes home or anything like that. And she definitely demands all of your attention anyway. She's an attention seeker, so she quite enjoys it. <laughs> she sounds like it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I know it's quite good. Fingers crossed I can be a little bit better than the previous generation before me and you know, my father and things like that because my mum did a good enough job. But I can only imagine if I had two functional parents, I'd, we could probably fly by now as humans if that was the case. 
I think you're on track to flying, that's for sure. <laughs> Here's your pointy question, Darren. What is your favourite Indigenous word and what does it mean? Poxy. I don't think it's a, an Aboriginal word per se, but just to call someone poxy, something was poxy, it more or less means that it was silly, stupid, not very good. And that's pretty much it. It's just every time I hear it, it reminds me of a country Aboriginal bloke at a country footy game calling someone poxy because he did a forward pass or something like that. It just makes me smile every time I hear it. I think that's a really good one because potentially people will see the word deadly and uh, they might be worried about what type of physios we're going to be interviewing, some crime fiction or who knows what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. However, like you said, you know, there are some words which within Aboriginal subcultures or circles have different meanings and are used in different ways. The next question I've got for you is what is one word that actually sums up reconciliation or this closing the gap? Advocacy, because a lot of people who are in rural and remote communities who make up a lot of the statistics that we strive to break down and not have, don't have a voice. Some of them don't even speak English, they're in their own local tongue. So I think having a good advocacy framework is a way to give us as a society a better potential for outcome, basically, because we're getting more voices into the mix and the more we can get in, the more informed our decisions can be. That is a really powerful word, actually, uh, giving a voice to those who don't. And uh, I'm now going to allow you to be an advocate for potentially a band or an artist that others aren't aware of. So I'm wondering, what is your favourite Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander band or artist? My favourite one would probably have to be Last Connection. Last Connection's music is about health and equities and the challenges people face and where we can go from here. I think the song I Can is probably one of the better ones. It's a really good song about where you want to go, or if not that, then another one called Find A Way is a good one as well because it's about trying to, you know, you don't have your own pathway, so you should make one. And that's where people are today, trying to make pathways to a better life and a better future for all people and especially ours. Well, Aaron, I just want to say that it has been such a privilege to occupy this part of your day when the baby has definitely wanted your attention. We want to thank you for your time and for sharing your story, which I think has so many takeaways and so many revelations within it. Thank you. And you've done an amazing job as well. Such a good MC. Thanks for listening to The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. To learn more about this episode's guest and the Deadly Physio series, head to our website at australian.physio forward slash the deadly physios. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review.